trigger warning. This podcast contains a deep discussion of grief, loss, self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Thanks for joining me this week for another helping of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Every time I interview a trans guest on the podcast, I always learn so much, and I hope you listeners do too. So in this episode, I'm checking in with Jamie. Jamie is a writer, disability advocate for cerebral palsy, and a transsexual female to male. In this episode, we discuss the difficulties that living with cerebral palsy has presented him throughout his life, the process of transition, and why he's found it difficult to get the medical support he needs, despite jumping through all the right hoops. We also talk about his fears for the gender dysphoric children seeking medical transition right now, why he feels there is an unnecessary narrative of fear around trans people coming to harm and the abuse he's received from people within the trans community for writing about his experiences and issues within the trans conversation right now. We also discuss the loss of his brother in a car accident when Jamie was 18, having to start university just months after it and the suicidality he experienced during that period of grief. So this is how my conversation with Jamie went. Jamie, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. I listened to your interview with Mars on his show and I was so keen to have you on as your voice is such a breath of fresh air in the community. We almost didn't we almost didn't even do this podcast because of some audio issues before we started, but we are cracking on now. So how are you? I'm doing well. I'm really happy to be here. Today, I'm doing okay, <laughs> aside from the audio issues. <laughs> Don't worry, we're here now, so we're, we're cracking on. I understand this is your first international podcast appearance, so I hope my UK listeners learn a lot from your journey, Jamie. So without further ado, let's start the show. I want to kick off the pod by talking about your own mental health journey first, Jamie. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, upbringing, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Jamie we meet here? The Jamie we meet here, she was a really happy kid. She started out as a really happy kid. But over time, she went through a whole range of experiences that made it really difficult for her to still be that happy kid. And she went from sadness to real anger. And those emotions led to like... I would say mental health like symptoms. I, mm-hmm. I was never diagnosed with anything, but I had a lot of issues uh, as a teenager and as a young adult that we just didn't know what was going on with me. Mm-hmm. I had all kinds of issues. You were born very prematurely, Jamie, at just 25 weeks gestation, and your doctors were unsure if you and your twin brother would even survive childbirth. So what are your memories of this time? And when were you diagnosed with a condition known as cerebral palsy? And what is it for listeners who don't know? Okay, so cerebral palsy is a neurological disability, and it is most often caused by brain damage at birth. 
it's not terminal, it's not progressive, it's not a disease, but it is incurable. So it's for life. And I was diagnosed within 72 hours of birth because they observed brain damage via brain scan. Because I was born so early, they were running tests and everything. My twin brother does not have CP at all. I have no memories of that time, obviously, but my parents have filled in the gaps as I've started asking more questions as an adult about what that experience was like. Someone with cerebral palsy, I understand, can expend three to five times the energy of someone without it on a regular day. So by age four, you were using so much energy that you couldn't gain weight and you had uncontrolled spasticity. To manage that, you had a pump inserted into you to maintain your weight. What was that like for your mental health? And what did you remember of that time? Did it help? The pump allowed me to like live and move and play like any other kid. So in that sense, it really helped my mental health and my physical health a lot. But on the other hand, going through surgery so young and not understanding why and not being able to choose was really, really traumatizing. You know, not being told, this is why we're doing this. This is how it's going to help you. My parents signed the consent form and just basically I, I went with it. I have very hazy memories of being small and not understanding you were under anesthesia, somebody cut you open, etc. And as a four-year-old kid, you have no way of conceptualizing that. So it was a good move in the end. You know, it allows me to function, but... It started me down a a path of figuring out, oh, I really am not like everybody else. Mm. And that's really difficult. Cerebral palsy, like many conditions and disabilities, exists on a spectrum, Jamie. So how limiting is yours? How does it compare to others? And you also said to me that a lot of people assume physical disability means cognitive disability. But that's not always true, is it? So break down some of those myths for me. Okay, so... With the type of brain damage that I had, there's four different grades of severity. And my damage level is level three, so it's fairly moderate. It primarily affects my legs and the way that I walk. I have a whole group of friends with CP, and the spectrum is really, really wide. Some people can walk unaided, some can't walk, some can't speak, you know. Some people are fine cognitively, some have other issues. As far as myths, a lot of people like to conflate physical disability with cognitive disability or the sense that you're not really an adult or you're not a real man or a real woman, that's just not true. We hit our milestones later than your average adult just because of all the physical things that we go through, but we are very much real people with issues like everybody else and we deserve to be seen as legitimate adults and and treated with respect. You said to me off air something quite striking. You said, everything done to me to keep me functioning has been an experiment. That's quite a profound statement to make. So what did you mean by that? What I meant by that is that I am part of a generation of disabled, you know, now adults who were not expected to live in the first place. And so as a result, the medical field are scrambling to treat us. The care that we receive due to the lack of long-term research and studies even though it is life-saving and it is life-giving, it qualifies as experimental. I've had, I don't know how many doctors say to me, we have no idea what's going to happen to you if you do this surgery or you do this intervention. And I have to be okay with that. And I still have to make the choice, not knowing what the future is going to hold. I read a very emotional essay you wrote on your Substack, Jamie, about your disability. And you said, quote, without meaning to, I became inspirational just by breathing. 
Between breaths, I was just a little girl who wanted a friend. Now, this is a trope I found that happens to a lot of disabled people, that people deem them inspirational just by existing or coexisting with other people. How frustrating was that to hear then, now, and has it gotten better, do you think? It's absolutely gotten better. As an adult, you know, looking back on my childhood and how different it was, I'm able to pinpoint, you know, it frustrated me because I knew that I was a whole person and complicated and, you know, just like anybody else with a disability in addition. But everybody else around me saw the disability first. They didn't see the person first. And so a lot of what I deal with as an adult is making sure whenever I'm speaking to somebody or interacting with somebody, they see the person first. That has been huge for me. You spoke there earlier about some of the surgeries that you'd had to have done to you because of your cerebral palsy and you've done many surgeries throughout your life at the time you didn't know this but cerebral palsy can cause something called precocious puberty so how did the surgeries interact with that and then how did it affect your mental health and the gender dysphoria that you later came to experience well something that happens to a lot of disabled kids regardless of the disability or the severity is that when you are for example, born into your disability. From the time that you're small, your medical team is looking to do as many surgeries on you before you hit puberty as possible. It's a very small window and it's a very intense thing to go through. And so hitting puberty, not only was I going through the typical puberty changes, but it was also like, I'm expected to be more mature than your average 10 year old, which is when I started puberty. I'm expected to be able to sit in these, you know, doctor's offices and consent to surgeries and go to therapy every week during school and have all these experiences that no other kid I know is having. And I have to be okay with it. And if I say that I've got issues with it, which I I started, you know, quite young saying, I don't want to be disabled. I'm really unhappy with it, et cetera. My parents had no idea what to do. I was the only disabled kid they had. So that experience going through puberty it just exacerbated issues that I already had. And going through it earlier than everybody else, I felt really, really alone. I knew there were probably kids my age going through it, but at the time, it didn't feel that way. It felt like, oh, I'm going through this thing and I'm maturing faster than everybody else and nobody understands how I feel. Before we go into that puberty element, Jamie, of your story and something that was quite obviously very difficult and dark for you one thing which helped you massively and was a positive was going to your first summer camp for children with disabilities so what was that experience like and how did seeing other kids like you help you and perhaps also show you that you weren't as alone as you had previously thought oh that that was such an amazing experience I mean up until that point in my life I knew, you know, maybe a handful of kids with disabilities, but in my day-to-day life, I was surrounded by people that didn't understand. And so going and meeting all these people, becoming friends with them, seeing all these kids doing things that I had always wanted to do with the disability that I have, and they're not letting it get in their way, and they're not down about it, they're actually quite proud of it, that was life-changing for me. That was like, oh, Maybe I've been going about this the completely wrong way emotionally. Like maybe there is a better way to deal with this rather than being really ashamed of it and really struggling with it. You know, I've got this friend or that friend that seems to have a good head on their shoulders and knows what they're talking about. Maybe if I follow their lead, I'll feel better about it. 
and it was mm. just amazing. When you were 12 years old, Jamie, that pump we spoke about that was helping you with your weight was replaced, but unbeknownst to you, it had also been leaking medication. And when your medical team installed a new pump, you ended up overdosing and you were almost comatose. You say in this part of your story on your Substack, quote, in the hospital recovering, a vision of the future formed which terrified me. I saw more surgeries, more pain, and the near certainty that I would never fit anywhere in the world. The severity of my differences smacked me in the face, and I despaired. After my overdose, I became convinced that the only way to ease the pain of not seeing a future for myself was to take my own life. Tell me how you felt in that moment. I felt like I was the only one. I felt like I was the only one in the world that that was going through it. And it had gotten to a point at that time in my life where I had stopped talking about how unhappy I was with my physical situation. And I just kind of kept it to myself. And looking back on it, looking back at that moment specifically, because I remember that moment really clearly. It was just this feeling of like, I don't want to do this anymore. And to be only 12 years old and feeling that way is scary, really Mm. scary. Mm. As your puberty continued, you began to fight the urge to conform to stereotypical or traditional sex roles more vehemently and after a fight with your mother you self-harmed for the first time you said cutting became an addiction a security blanket and a secret superpower under the guide of a blade I tamed the emotional intensity to a manageable degree I started to lie about how I really felt with ease and success it was something I'd never been able to do before so who's the Jamie we meet at this point so at that point I was 13, and even then, I have no other way to describe her than just darkness personified. I had always been a really good student, and I loved school, you know, but I started failing classes, I started getting into physical fights, isolating myself from everyone and everything. Like, at least 10 times, comfortably, I threatened my parents with suicide. It was just really, really dark. Really dark. Unfortunately, after that stereotypical method of self-harm, Jamie, it then developed into something related to your weight, which was namely an eating disorder called bulimia. Why do you think that happened and how did that affect your mental health? I think it happened for a multitude of reasons. For one, um, my parents knew at this point that I had been self-harming and they were very vigilant as parents are. And so I knew I'm feeling emotionally distressed. I can't go back to cutting myself because my parents are going to find out and I don't want to deal with that, but I don't have an outlet. What am I going to do? And at this point, there was more pressure on me to manage my weight. And I thought that if I just lost weight, I would be acceptable and the pain that I felt would dissipate and I would fit as it were. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was trying to do was trying to make myself fit. Despite all of this going on, Jamie, you were also having to come to terms with your sexuality as a lesbian. And you write incredibly articulately about this internal battle you were having with this in the article on your Substack. So tell me about this, if you can, and the story of how you told your school counsellor you were seeing the truth about it. I remember that day going into the school counsellor's office and being terrified, like, thinking that I'd made a mistake, thinking that I was going to get laughed at. I had no idea what her response was going to be. And I just 
broke down crying and I said, this is what I'm dealing with. Can you help me? And she was incredibly kind and said, there's nothing wrong with you. If you think you're gay, you probably are. Or something along those lines. I had gone on and on about it to the point where there was no doubt in her mind, just looking at her face, that she knew what I knew. And it's one of the things that I look back on a lot because what if she had said to me, there is something wrong with you? I I can't imagine what my response would have been. So to have a supportive adult that like calmed me down and and said, it's okay, was amazing. Let's talk about how you've managed cerebral palsy in adulthood now, Jamie. So you discovered that people with it have a higher risk of having or are likely to have mental health issues than non-disabled people, but you were never told that by the medical professionals who treated you. If you had, what would have changed for you? Do you think you'd be in a better position now or would have had maybe a level of self-awareness at an earlier age? Oh my gosh. Had I known the emotional and mental issues that I were dealing with as a teenager would have made so much more sense because, oh, I have a higher risk of mental health issues. I'm dealing with all these things that are symptomatic of mental health issues. Had I known, I would have managed my diet better. I would have managed my exercise better. I would have been really careful when drinking. I would have learned how to manage my stress so much better. I actually think that as a result of not having that information, I'm in an even better position now than I would have been. You know, it's it's one of those things where it would have been nice to have in hindsight, but I didn't have it. And so I'm really grateful that I was able to figure it out for myself. You told me that in the United States, as a disabled person, until the age of 21, you receive the best care money can buy, essentially. But after that, you're on your own. So can you just unpack that for me? How do you navigate that cliff edge of care? Okay, so it's... It's definitely a a huge learning curve and a huge learning experience for anybody going through it. What often ends up happening is that your parents basically guide you through it with all the knowledge that they've accrued. So what I've ended up doing is leaning on my local community for info about doctors and procedures and learning how to like fill my own prescriptions for various things. And then also calling my parents up and being like, when I was getting this medication or using this physical aid, how did you guys go about doing that? What did you do? How do you deal with things like insurance, you know, and really becoming my own self-advocate and being the best advocate for myself that I can be has been the best way to deal with it. Recognizing there's going to be stress, there's going to be issues, but if I keep my wits about me and take it one step at a time, I will figure it out is how I've managed. Before we talk about your gender dysphoria and transition, Jamie, I want to discuss something which affected you and your family really profoundly. When you were 18, a few months before you headed off to university, your brother tragically died in a car crash. If you could, can you just tell me about the Jamie we meet at this point and the events leading up to, including and after his death? Uh, Well, I was graduating high school that week and... He had come home to see me graduate from college, but he was supposed to go back to work the next day after, you know, seeing me graduate and everything because he had work and other commitments. And he drove back early and on the way back, he fell asleep at the wheel. And at that point, 
in my life and in his life. I was really getting my life together. He was getting his life together. He was going into his senior year of college. Everything was looking up for him. And for me, like, I was at the best point I had ever been in my life. I had stopped self-harming. I had stopped with the eating disorder. I had figured out my sexual orientation and I was doing well with it. There were so many things going on for both of us that were so good and so just everything you would want for a person. And so to have him die so suddenly was, it really felt like I had been robbed. Like we as a family had been robbed of everything that we were promised when he was born. Hmm. What kind of person was your brother for you and for your family? And, and what are your favorite memories of him? He was, I say this in my writing and in my conversations with people who, who ask about him. He was my bodyguard. He was really tall, like six foot three, 250 pounds of muscle, <laughs> football player, phenomenal athlete. He was going to be, you know, the captain of his college football team just before he died. Like he was really, really talented, but he was also smart and a really talented artist. And he just lived life with absolutely no fear. And he was always doing something fun, always had a smile on his face. He was just such a happy person. That's what I remember. And that's what we as a family remember. Are there any things that he said or did with you that you hold dear as an adult and keep that memory of him alive? He was really resilient. He had this ability to bounce back from setbacks that I didn't understand at the time. And, and now as an adult, that's what I think about when I'm in a tough spot is I think about, you know, what would he be thinking right now? What would he be saying to me right now? Because he was always the one when I was growing up to cheer me up. You know, I've mentioned how dark my childhood and teenage years were, but they were not as dark as they could have been because he would pull me out of it. He would get me to smile. He would get me to laugh. He would remind me that I, you know, was not the only person with problems. And so I really take that attitude and that absolute fearlessness that he had and carry it with me as an adult. Because of the impact of your brother's death, it unfortunately resulted in your parents divorcing. And we'll get to your transition in a moment, but you said that because of your brother's death, you feared that your parents would think that they hadn't just lost their son, but now they lose their daughter. What was your mental health state like at this point? My mental health state was the worst that it had ever been. It took me at least a year of going back and forth within my own head, talking to my partner, talking to therapists and, and other people and saying to them, if you were me and you knew that my family had been through this horrible, traumatic thing, and now you're gonna, you're gonna transition essentially and they no longer have a daughter anymore, what would you do? And, and I, I never got an answer from anybody. They, they just were flabbergasted by it. And I was really concerned because I got the sense from interacting with my parents. I mean, it's been almost a decade since he died and they are still devastated by it, absolutely devastated by it. And I had decided, you know, watching all of this happen to them 
I am not going to put them through that again. I, I had this idea in my mind that I was doing that to them. And I ended up talking to them about it. And they said to me, it's not the same. It's not like our daughter died because we did lose our son. And we know what that's like. It's different, but it's not the way that you're thinking it is. And that really, really helped me. And that's what I hold on to when I'm getting down about it. It's mm. just that it's not the same at all. In that moment of horrendous grief, do you think in a way it caused that relationship between you and your parents to improve, given what you had said about how fractious it was when you were going through suicidality in your early teenage years? Yeah, my relationship with my parents really strengthened as a result of all of this, particularly with my dad. I write about him a lot. He's the closest male person to me in my life and, and a really good influence but my mom even you know as time has gone on she's starting to recognize like she was doing the best she could I was doing the best I could and it's okay like she didn't fail as a mom because I was having all these issues and I've said that to her you know that she did fine I'm a thriving adult so I, it's it's good to have those relationships though despite everything that happened mm. Going through such an awful, awful period of grief, Jamie, is bad enough at any point in your life. But to do it just before you go to university, where it's a pretty tumultuous thing, you're moving out for the first time, you're making all of these new friends. How do you navigate that grief, especially around people you had only just met? Were you able to disclose it to them? Because, you know, on the surface, they might think, oh, you're, you're isolating yourself, you're going into your room, and they might think, oh, you're not the nicest person. But actually, you're just going through an, a really intense period of grief. How did you navigate that? Well, it, they knew about it from the beginning. I mean, at that point, it had not even been two months since he died. So it was, it was all over the place. It was all over my face. It was all over my speech, my movements. I just was a complete mess as a human being. And I remember feeling so guilty because these young girls, 18, 19-year-old girls, had no idea how to deal with somebody that was going through something like that. And I recognized even then, like, they're just kids. They don't understand. I think that one of the things that really became clear to me in that period was recognizing my life as I knew it is never going to be the same ever again. And they are still living in that, what I call the bubble, <laughs> where you think that everything is going to go well for you if you just do everything right. And so I was open with them about it. And two of the three were understanding and really kind. But one said to me, well, he was just your brother. And I don't understand why you are struggling so much. I'm paraphrasing her words. So she sounds much nicer than she was. But <laughs> yeah, it was not a it was not a good response from that particular individual at all. And it really, for a long time, stuck in my craw. It, it really bothered me because I had this running loop in my head thinking if I talk about him too much, if I express that I'm sad or that I miss him, then I look depressed. Then I look like I'm not doing well and I don't want to make anybody else uncomfortable hmm. on top of, you know, managing my own grief. I now had to worry about making other people uncomfortable and that sucked. Hmm. 100%. And you, I'm really sorry you went through that. The grief ended up causing you to have sleepless nights you weren't able to eat properly and at its worst you had suicidal thoughts and a suicide attempt as well through severe self-harming 
Would you say this was your most difficult moment, Jamie? I would say that the suicide attempt was the most difficult moment that I've ever had. Very close second to that is those first couple of months, that first year, first two years in university where I call it survival mode. My routine at that point became what got me through my day. Even if I didn't feel like living, essentially, I forced myself. I have no idea how I managed to make it that long without attempting suicide because I really did not want to be alive anymore. I had no idea how to handle this. And, you know, I I wasn't the best student. I didn't go to class all the time. It was this thing where I would go between... I made a commitment before he died to go to college. I signed all these loans. My parents are helping me pay for this and I have a job to do. And then also, okay, but he's dead. And my life as I knew it is completely gone and none of it matters anyway. So it was this horrible back and forth of like, what do you do? And I just had no choice but to keep pushing through it. Thankfully, those roommates that were very nice to you noticed you were in a bad way and said that you should go and talk to somebody. And you started seeing a therapist and you stayed with that person for two, three years. You said to me that they put you back together. So how did they do that? Well, Dr. Kovacs was his name and he was just an amazing man. I would not be sitting here today talking to you if it were not for that man and what he did for me. All he did really was talk to me. I came in, I started talking about what had happened to me and I said, you know, everybody thinks I'm depressed, but I'm really not. I know exactly what's wrong with me and I just need help. And he just talked to me like a person, you know, he said, how's your sleep? How's your diet? How's your routine? Do you have friends? Do you have things that you like to do? Like you're still a full person and you're allowed to have a life and you're allowed to be happy. And I, when I think about that, when I think about people that write off psychology or therapy as not effective, that to me is the prime example of therapy as an effective strategy. The first thing you do is talk to somebody about what they're dealing with. And that's exactly what he did for me. He didn't force me onto meds. He didn't say, you know, you've got this mental health issue. He just said, you're a person and you're dealing with something and let's help you. And I appreciate that more than I can even express. Dr. Kovacs recommended you start antidepressants and you took your time with this decision before agreeing, which is a great thing to do. How did you figure out what was right for you and If you did start taking it, how did it help you? This was about after two years of counseling where I had implemented everything he told me to do and I still was struggling, like really struggling. And he said to me, I think it's time that you try medication. And my partner, who is now my wife, sat me down because I was very resistant to the idea of medication. And she said, if you don't, start medicating, you are going to end up committing suicide. I know you and I know how your mind works and you need to at least try. And I knew from having done research, you know, people go through different medications to find the one that works. 
And in my case, I had very little adjustment after I started that antidepressant. I mean, they added a mood stabilizer later on, but that combination of medication is the medication that I take today, every morning. And without those meds, I don't even want to imagine what my life would be like because I can function. It's not always great. It's not always fun. I struggle with a depression-like melancholy, but it's much, much better. And I wouldn't have known that medication could help if I hadn't taken that risk. Before we move on to your transition, Jamie, if your brother was listening to this podcast, I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think (laughs) you would say to him and what do you think he'd say to you? To him, I would say that I understand. I've now surpassed the age that he was when he died. And I get now what it is to be going through a lot of what he experienced at that age. And it is so illuminating for me. As for what he would say to me, you know, I've been thinking about this question since you sent it to me, Freddie, (laughs) and trying to figure out what he would say. And I really have no idea other than, you know, the typical, I love you. Because so much time has passed Mm. and life has changed so much that I think his jaw would just be on the floor. I don't even know what he would say. There's a lot to catch up on. (laughs) There's, yeah, there's so much that he just would be in disbelief. Maybe you could send him a box set before he had a chat with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about your transition now, Jamie. So when did you first start experiencing gender dysphoria and how did it affect your mental health? Looking back with the knowledge that I have now and really combing through my memories, I would say as soon as I started puberty, 10 or 11, as soon as my body started changing, I recognized this is not correct. And I don't know why, but this does not feel right instinctively. And as time went on, I got more and more masculine, as a lot of gender nonconforming kids do. And it was not connected to sexuality at all. I mean, I didn't realize I was gay until I was like 17. So from 11 to like, 16 i was just getting progressively more and more masculine Mm. more and more you know unisex looking whatever whatever word you want to use and i didn't understand why everybody around me was freaking out about it like as a little girl i had had really long hair and i had been really feminine looking and then once i hit puberty it was like a switch flipped and i became this short-haired butch looking (laughs) very obviously gay kid (laughs) and it really bothered me for a little while because Mm. I I wanted so much to be the child that my mother wanted it had always been this thing between her and I that we never talked about but she really took it hard my dad didn't really care My friends didn't really care. They kind of thought I was weird anyway. (laughs) But my mom was like, you have to be more feminine. You have Mm. to look this way. You can't wear certain things. You can't wear your hair short, too short, because you'll look like a boy. And then when I really started expressing myself, I came out to her and I said, like, I'm a butch lesbian. This is what it means. I'm not a man. You know, I just want to look this way and, and... dress this way and I meant it at the time that's the crazy thing is that I meant it and as soon as I said that to her she would get on my case and be like are you trying to be a man you must really want to be a man you know things like that that 
a lot of butch women get and it she was, was projecting just really... her fears basically yeah. yeah yeah and she she struggled with the homosexuality most of all the gender nonconformity i think bothered her but it was what it resulted in yeah me not being straight that she was really bothered by and i i took it really personally for a very long time you said that a lot of normies think that one day you'll wake up and change your sex which we both know is medically impossible when actually you took 20 years to realize this so what would you want my normie listeners to know about the transition process and yours specifically that they might not be aware of what i would want them to know is that Every decision you make in your transition takes time, whether it's social, whether it's medical, whether it's surgical, whether it's legal, every single decision takes time. <laughs> and Or it should take time. And, or it should, or it yeah. should. And these, these before and after pictures that you see on social media are not reflective of the time it takes. You know, as soon as I came out and started living this way, they were like, when are you starting hormones? When are you getting surgeries? Jesus. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down a little bit. I just got into this. And mm. you're like rushing me. And a lot of, you know, non-initiated people think that it is that way when it's not. Um, and it's it's also very emotionally and mentally taxing to be making these decisions because you know, even if they're the right decision for you, this could potentially be life-changing or life-ruining or life-threatening. Like, there's so much that we don't know about transition. And when you step into that space, you're taking a risk. And to be not only gawked at, kind of, and looked at as weird for taking a risk, but also a lot of the negative pushback from people that don't even know you or your medical situation is just like, really? You got to add that on top of it? Like... <laughs> It's just a lot. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, you didn't see anyone who was disabled who had transitioned. What was that like? Did you feel like you were the only one going through this? And if you had, would it have helped you? Or do you think it would have made you think maybe transition isn't the right choice? What was your process there like? I really struggled. Once I realized... It took me a solid five years between coming out as a lesbian and starting to live this way to decide, okay, yes, this is something I want to do. And yes, I think it would benefit me. I don't think those two things are the same. You know, people make decisions all the time that they think are going to benefit them, but they don't really know until they do it. And not seeing anybody, especially on the medical side of things. I have a friend of more than two decades who has known me since I was seven or eight years old, they were the first person that I met at that summer camp. And they're now transitioning from female to male. And so seeing their transition and seeing how difficult it is for them, I was really afraid, but I also knew because there is nobody else, I don't have a choice. It's not like if I wait a while, there's going to be this huge group of people. I knew of people at the time that were doing it, and I knew that my friend was doing it. But I figured, it's a small group, and you know what? If it doesn't work, I can always go back. But then I did it, and it worked. And I was. it took me a, a long time, especially not seeing that growing up. I'm really not sure that I would have been helped by seeing somebody transitioning with a disability when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. Because... 
trans people do this thing, generally speaking, and I've done it, where you look back at your life and you look back at your history and how your how your dysphoria develops and you say to yourself, yes, I absolutely would have benefited from transition when I was younger. I can look back at everything I went through when I was younger and say that if transition had been offered to me before I had dealt with the self-harm issue, mm-hmm. before I had dealt with the eating disorder, before I had dealt with my sexuality, I would not have done well. I think my transition came at the perfect time. I was ready by the time I was an adult to take it on and really think about it. And not being surrounded by people that understood was hard, but it was also, I've been on my own path my whole life. So I know how to manage it in a way that other people don't. The big part of transitioning, which is sometimes forgotten in the conversation, Jamie, and it's one that I've spoken about with Buck Angel, with Debbie, with Mars, is socially transitioning. And a lot of trans people that I've spoken to find this process the hardest. However, when you started doing it, you were age 22, you found it a largely positive experience. Tell me why. It was positive because at the time, I thought that that was the only way that I was going to be able to transition. I had not thought about legal transition yet. I was not even putting medical transition on the table because I had done so much research and seen there is nobody. So this is a huge risk and do I really wanna take it? But social transition is the least invasive intervention that you Mm -hmm. can do. Granted, it's psychological. There's a lot that you go through, but it's as simple as changing your name that you go by, changing your clothes, changing your hair. It's things that if you do make a mistake, which is what I was worried about, it's easy to go back relatively speaking. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's easier to go back than saying, you know, hormones or surgeries. And for me, knowing that my transition was already going to be different, I went into it so grateful for the opportunity to even be doing it. I did not expect anything from anybody. I did not have any expectation about how the outside world was going to look at me. I just sort of put everything that I was worried about onto a list of, you know, a piece of paper or whatever. And I wrote down, you know, I'm worried that people are going to laugh at me. I'm worried that I'm not going to have any friends. I'm worried that, you know, my partner isn't going to want to be with me anymore. I'm worried about all sorts of things. I put it all on a list and I set it down and I said, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to do this and whatever happens, happens. And I'll take it one day at a time. And I just sort of took it that way. And It's difficult because you are dealing with like a couple decades of sex socialization by this Mm -hmm. point. I I don't think most people realize because they don't even have to think about it, how much of your socialization you are not aware of. Soon as I socially transitioned, I became aware of everything. I bet. (laughs) The way I spoke and the speed at which I spoke, the pitch of my voice, how I wore my hair, my clothing choices. I had to be on point all the time. And it took me, it took me about a year to really get comfortable with the social transition. You went back to education during your social transition and studied psychology. So how did that inform this process? And what did you learn about, say, other parts of the transition, like medical interventions that you might not have known otherwise? Well, I went back for a brief time to study psychology. That did not end up working out. But what I learned is that the world of 
science and peer-reviewed papers that the public thinks are like set in stone or that science proves things, that's not true. Science suggests things and psychology specifically, you try things and you see what works from a, from a therapeutic method perspective. And, you know, I, I learned about, there is no best method of therapy. It's case by case. There is no best way to approach a trans person. It's case by case. As far as medical interventions go, I learned from my study of statistics and things like, you know, the different types of studies there are, it, just very basic stuff that a lot of these papers that are written about transsexual medical interventions are either redacted or, you know, there's something not quite right in the data. If you don't have a psychology background, you wouldn't normally notice. I took those things that I had learned from studying psychology and like the way that people think and, and feel and stuff. And I brought it into my transition and I used it as a basis for, oh, this is why people are weirded out by the fact that I transitioned and this is how I can help them, you know, sort of, I don't know, just working with the knowledge that I had. You've also changed the marking on your passport to male too. Why did you take that decision? Did you want to do it to feel validated or be able to move around the world as you know invisibly as possible? And can you see the arguments as to why someone might find it confusing who is not trans? Yeah, I can definitely see it would be confusing to somebody that's not trans because it's not something they have to think about in their everyday life. And by the time that I decided to change my legal name and my sex marker, I had been living as Jamie for a couple of years with, you know, friends, family, in work environments, mind you. And so I decided, you know, medical transition may not be possible, but at least legally for me to be Jamie and live that way, I'm okay with that. And so that's what I did. I actually found after I did that, you know, I still get weird looks because I don't pass. But then when I'm out at a restaurant somewhere and somebody looks at my ID, if I'm having a drink, I don't get any more questions because they don't question it. They look at me a little bit weird, but they're not like, what are you? They just kind of take it in stride. And so it was validating for me. Yes. But it was also like my way of saying, I'm owning this. This is what I'm doing. If you have a problem with it, that's fine. If you don't agree with it, that's fine. But it's my life and I want to be recognized in any way that I can as the opposite sex. Unlike some trans people, Jamie, you socially transition first as you're still in the process of thinking about whether to go on testosterone. I saw a, a tweet thread you did the other day, which was kind of deliberating on whether to do that. Can you tell me about this part of transition then? Do you feel like you want to go on testosterone to start that medicalization process or are you happy with the way things are? I absolutely, I'm going to say this and I'm, it's going to sound very dramatic to you, but I need testosterone to function at this point in order to pass, in order to be comfortable with myself, just comfortable with myself. I need testosterone in order to do that. And I'm having quite a hard time doing that because like I was saying to you before about the scarcity of research for disabled trans people, there is nothing. All I have to go on are able-bodied people's experiences of what testosterone has done to them. I don't have a disabled person's 
perspective. I've spoken to a few people who are on testosterone, and my friend is one of them, but their experience is going to be different than mine because their condition affects them differently. And, you know, another disabled person's condition that uses testosterone or estrogen or what have you, that's going to affect them differently. And so going into the medical space and saying to medical professionals, hey, I know this has never been done before, but could you help me out? That's incredibly scary and it's incredibly risky. And I went through a lot just to be able to socially and legally transition. And I weigh the pros and cons of medical transition every day. I'm not obsessed by it by any means, but it's a huge choice. And I really think that most people do not understand how life-changing it can be. I've met so many trans people as a result of the advocacy work that I do. And every one of them has said hormones and surgeries changed my life completely. I don't want to rush into that change prematurely. Yeah, that's completely understandable. You've struggled to get access to testosterone, Jamie, and you try to get doctors to diagnose you with gender dysphoria, which you self-evidently have. You told me that the irony about all of this is given how quickly a lot of teenagers who are presenting to gender clinics are given medical interventions, if you were a mm-hmm. teenager, the process would be done quicker despite all the moral implications that would throw up and we'll probably talk about it in a little bit later. Does that frustrate you? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget filling out my name change paperwork and realizing, oh, because I'm an adult and my parents are not paying for this, I have to pay like a lot of money and fees and I have to change everything and I've got you know 20 plus years of experience as one person and now I have to go in and say hey by the way I changed my name and I'm not committing identity fraud and kids that transition have it a lot easier because their parents do a lot of the legwork for them in terms of the medical interventions seeing how quickly they're being given medical interventions is quite frustrating because a lot of the times in those cases, there's very little assessment. There's very little (laughs) talk therapy. It's insane to see. And so to be on the other side of it, having all this talk therapy, going to all these professionals saying, hey, I've done all the right things and I think I would benefit and being told no, it is just unbelievable to me. You had a brief flirtation I think is the right phrase to use with non-binary when you were around 20, 21 years old. Why did you adopt that? And why did you leave it? I adopted that as a sort of compromise to transitioning to the opposite sex. Because I recognized by that point that I did want to transition to the opposite sex. But I knew if I do this, my life is going to be completely different. I risk losing my friends, my family, everything that I know. And do I really want to make such an irreversible choice so young? And I decided, you know what? Maybe I'm worrying too much about the label. Maybe I just need to be me and not worry about any of this. And and non-binary as well for me was also an out, a very easy out. Because if I was non-binary then I wouldn't have to commit to medical transition. And as much as I wanted it, it also scared me. It also really scared me. 
I dealt with it for about a year. And then by the end of that year, I had come out publicly and I had written a letter and I had done all the things that you do when you come out, you know, nowadays on social media. And I realized, oh my gosh, I totally made a mistake. I am not non-binary. This is not going to work long term. I need to transition. And what am I going to do? But I realized like people make mistakes all the time. And for me to try something and realize that it didn't work, aside from it being a gender thing, that's a human experience. And I shouldn't feel bad that it didn't work. I tried it. And by this point, I had tried everything I could think of to avoid transitioning. And I left because I realized if this doesn't work for me, then why am I wasting my time doing it? Why not go in search of something that actually does work? Since I've been dealing with this thing for so long and I need to fix it. Non-binary gender identity appears for some people to be a gateway into trans and for some it's a middle ground gateway out of trans for detransitioners and for people like you, Jamie, where you went into it and then quickly left it. What is your perspective on it now that you've left it? Is it on one hand? what some would argue is an unnecessary conservative label, maybe a dangerous label for otherwise normal gender stereotype, non-conforming males and females. Is it wrong to say that non-binary is the same as trans or can you be non-binary and trans? Like a lot of people seem to be saying, you know, someone like Blair White makes a distinction that she doesn't believe that non-binary people can be trans or it's kind of disrespectful to say that it's the same. Or on the other hand, is it a necessary and liberal challenge to historical gender orthodoxies that helps people become who they are and an additional strand of the rainbow or LGBT umbrella? I would say from my experience, seeing how that label increased my gender dysphoria and it made me so aware of the fact that I really am not the opposite sex. I would say that for people being attracted to it at younger and younger ages, it's potentially dangerous because what you're doing is saying these labels don't have any meaning. I can just be whatever. And that's not how life works. Labels have meaning. That was the thing that I realized where I was like, oh gosh, I've made a mistake because the label woman for most people has meaning. The label man for most people has meaning. And for me recognizing I need to be a man. It is not enough for me to be non-binary, gender neutral, whatever. For some people that works, but I would say for the vast majority of people, there's no point in putting a label on yourself to be who you are. Gay people are gay people regardless of what they call themselves, you know. Trans people are trans people regardless of what they call mm. themselves. I think that trans and non-binary are different because non-binary exists in this sort of limbo space where you can pursue medicalization but a lot of people don't and they see it as like a more social thing and that's fine but then some people who are non-binary say well I'm trans because I've had medicalization and while I don't agree with that I think that it is just not a good space for people to be in long term I think is what I will end with yeah do you think it's one of those phrases that can mean everything and nothing which is almost a problem in itself Yes, that's often how I've described it is that when you're in it, when you're using it, when you're calling yourself non-binary, it's everything to you. But when you use it in the wider world, most people don't know what non-binary means. <laughs> My dad said to me, 
you're what? I had to Google that, you know, like he didn't know what it meant. And I realized over time, like it may be everything to me, how I'm perceived. And this word may have meaning for me, but it doesn't have meaning for anybody else. And do I want to be, you know, somebody that only cares about me or do I want to actually, as, as Buck Angel says, he's, he's a dear friend. He says, you know, do I want to coexist with the world? And I very much wanted to coexist with the world. So I left and I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast who's struggling with similar gender issues to really think about what do you want? Do you want to be on the fringes or do you want to coexist? Either way, it can work for you, but you do have to decide. Let's reflect now on your journey, Jamie. At the end of the article you wrote about your transition, you say, my transsexualism, like my disability, is not a tragedy. How I have been failed at every opportunity is. Is that how you feel now or has your perspective changed? That is really how I feel now, looking back on everything that I went through. This is something that not a lot of people know, and I I did write about it in that Substack piece that I was in and out of crisis centers as a teenager with self-harm issues, eating disorders. People saw that there was something wrong with me, that I was struggling with something. And every time I went to talk to somebody, from the time I was like six, I remember saying to my parents, mom and dad, I'm in the wrong body. That is exactly what I said to them. And I said it repeatedly up until I was about eight or nine, and then I stopped for a while. And then as a teenager, it came back with a vengeance because I was going through puberty. And everybody that I spoke to, mental health professionals, I said, I'm in the wrong body. I'm not comfortable. I shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. And I avoided hospitalization because I was able to say to them, oh, but it's just, you know, it's normal. It's this, it's that. And I got out of it. When you're young like that and you're going through something that you don't understand and you can't see cognitively, you're not mature enough to understand the implications of what you're doing to yourself, those medical professionals, those mental health professionals have a job to do when they're sitting down with a kid. And I feel like even now as an adult, getting all the wonderful help that I've gotten, I was majorly failed. Somebody should have sat me down and said, what you really need is friends. What you really need is to learn how to love you. What you really need is to figure out who you are and don't worry about the rest of it. Because that's what I was worried about, was that I wouldn't have a life the way that I was. And it's one of those things where you go through it and you don't think it's as bad as it actually is. Looking back as an adult, like that was a horrible time in my life. And all I really got was, well, we don't really know what's wrong with you. And you seem like a nice kid, but we can't help you. I should not have accepted that answer. I should have fought harder. I should have gone to my parents and been like, hey, take me to a therapist now, please. Like they did it once or twice, but they were like, you'll grow out of it. And I was like, what do you mean I'm going to grow out of it? You know, I I didn't believe, but I really would have benefited from mental health care. Absolutely. Mm. And as a final question before we move on, how has transitioning shaped you into the person you are today? And if you could go back and talk to the Jamie who was struggling with the loss of his brother, the Jamie who was presenting as non-binary, or the Jamie who was struggling to access testosterone, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Knowing what I do now, I would say two things. Number one, take it one day at a time. Trying to look at the future from your vantage point isn't going to work. 
The second thing that I would say is that this is something that you will learn how to carry. There's a phrase in the grief community, as it were, because I read a lot of grief books after Brian died. And this phrase is called carrying. And what it means is you learn how to take whoever you lost into the rest of your life. And so when I say, you know, younger me, different me, you're going to learn how to carry this thing. That's what I mean is it'll take you time, but you're going to figure out how to bear the weight that you carry. And it's going to be okay eventually. You just got to figure out, you know, how to deal with it. (laughs) As far as how it shaped me as a person, I really connected emotionally and mentally with my disability because when you are going through something as fundamental as a disability to a person, people ask me all the time, what would your life be like if you weren't disabled? And my honest answer is, I don't know. People ask me all the time, what would your life be like if you weren't a transsexual, if you didn't have gender dysphoria? And my answer is, I don't know. It's so fundamental to me and so such a part of my life and has shaped me so profoundly that I am never going to be the same person. And I, I think it's for the better. I really do. I've met a lot of people that it's not for the better and they don't thrive. But for me, it was the right choice. And I'm glad that I made it. We've talked about your mental health journey, Jamie. I want to talk now about the work you do as a commentator and advocate in this trans space or in this online conversation around trans. So firstly, how and why did this journey begin? Well, it began because I had been going to a local trans support group for about six months and the people there were very nice and I had some really good experiences But I was also so disturbed by what I was seeing. And I had been reading on Twitter, reading on the internet, etc. A lot of what people believe the trans experience to be. And I compared that with my own on the ground experience. And I realized like, most people are not in these groups. They have an idea of what goes on in these groups, but they're not sitting there getting to know these people getting to understand them and being disturbed by a lot of what goes on. And and I am, and I'm in a unique position to where I'm in one of these groups and I'm considering doing this thing that most people never think about. And maybe there's a space for me in this conversation, particularly around kids going through medical stuff when they're young. That's something that I know really, really intimately. I just decided I was sitting down at my kitchen table one night and I was just fed up. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to write this. I'm going to put it on the internet because that scares me. And when something scares me, I know it's probably a good idea. And I'm going to see what happens. And I thought nobody was going to read it. I figured, you know, people make blogs all the time and nobody reads their stuff. <laughs> it's, it's a very common thing. And, and then I gave it some time to kind of germinate, kind of marinate, you know, up on the internet. And it exploded. It's been viewed now more than 1,200 times. Wow. And it's, and it's opened up my life so much. I thought that I was alone for such a long time. And then I wrote that piece. It was not polished. It was not my usual standard of like high quality former English hmm. major writing. It was very like shooting from the hip, but it connected with a lot of people. And I got so many wonderful comments from people saying, Thank you for sharing your experience. Your experience has value. 
I've lost count of the number of people who tell me your experience has value. And that means more to me than I can even describe to Mm. you. Before we get into that blog, Jamie, and the slightly controversial title, which you gave, or provocative title, I should say, there's a narrative within certain parts of the trans community that I've read that trans people are in constant fear of discrimination, violence, and even death. How true is that? And if it's not, are these people who are claiming that making other trans people feel fear when there's no need to? I would say that the trans people that I've interacted with in real time and on the internet, but especially in these groups that I was in, they live in constant fear, constant fear. They're afraid all the time. But the problem is that their fear is unfounded. They don't recognize because they're only in these groups. They only socialize with other trans people. And I've seen this with trans people on the internet too, where you ask them what their friend group is like or what they do for fun. And and then you realize, oh, their entire personality, their entire life is being a trans person. They have nothing outside of that. So it's an echo chamber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I think... Some of the fear is warranted. Mm-hmm. I think the fear of violence is warranted. Sure. I think the fear of mistreatment is warranted. Do I think those things occur at the rate which I am told by other trans activists that they occur? No, I don't. Because most trans people, when you sit down and you talk to them, they want to get on with their lives. Even the ones that you sense are a little bit off, not all there, whatever have you, they don't want to hurt anybody. They're not in it to hurt anybody they just want to be left alone and so feeling like everybody is out to get you is a very real thing yeah it's horrible especially when it's it's not right if it's not true that's a horrible mindset to be living in right and not only that but when you are transitioning and you're realizing that the reality of how you see yourself does not match the reality of how other people see you you start questioning everything and you have to learn really quickly to be thriving in this environment, how to differentiate between what's true objectively and what's not. You have to set your feelings aside and really look at, okay, what is happening here? And the trans people who are afraid of violence and mistreatment to unnecessary degrees have lost that ability because they're in these echo chambers. And most trans people that I talk to, Mars, he's a friend of the podcast and he's a great guy. I've interviewed with him a couple times. He knows because he's been living it and we've had conversations about it where he's like, yeah, this thing that they're talking about, not happening. Uh, this, you know, fear <laughs> of violence or this risk. Well. <laughs> yeah, not happening. And I, I've seen it with my own two eyes. I've lived it. So, and that was really the start of my advocacy was recognizing all these people making comments about what it is to transition unless they're trans themselves, they don't really have any idea. And I do. I can do something about this to sort of give people a window into what this is. Let's talk about that blog now. So on your Substack, it's called Self Made Renegade. The title of it is She Just Can't Wait to Be King, The Hubris Infecting Young Trans Men. You've already spoken about the positive comments about it. But for my listeners who might not understand... Why did you end up getting so much horrific abuse when it was published too? Well, I got a lot of horrific abuse because it deviates from the narrative that everyone is valid. It says some very honest truths in a way that I think only a transsexual can say them. Just a a trans person talking about their experience as a trans person. But it was not with a happy-go-lucky, everything's wonderful, these people are all my friends and 
all non-trans people suck. I didn't do that. I said, this is what's really going on mm-hmm. in these groups. And most people don't have access. And I, I didn't go into it thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to make friends with these people and then write about them. You know, It wasn't like that at all. But I just was so disturbed by what was happening, particularly with young women who may identify as gay men. I found that to be very unsettling. Of the group that I was in, specifically, it was 50 plus people easily. And myself and another guy were the only two homosexual transsexuals, binary trans guys. Mm. Everybody else was either a gay trans guy or non-binary or a trans woman. And seeing, you know, these people that call themselves gay trans men are not truly homosexuals. When you look at their biological sex, they are at the very least bisexual. That is not the same thing. That's all I was saying was they're not really homosexuals. And I don't appreciate the insinuation that they are. Just say that you're a female that transitioned that dates the opposite sex. Just don't use the word gay when you're not really gay. That's all I was trying to say. And people took that really, really hard. They were like, you know, how could you say this? Gay trans men are your brothers, blah, 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 you know, all this horrible stuff. And it was like, did you even read what I wrote? And most people just latched on to the, you're not validating everybody thing and ran with it and said, mm. you're a horrible person. Just things that I don't even want to repeat. Yeah. Because no, I was honest. I won't ask you about I... either. <laughs> yeah. I spoke about this with detransitioner Helena, who's amazing. And I had a really great conversation with her about this specific issue, actually, Jamie, about this phenomenon of heterosexual females transitioning, but then their sexuality doesn't change but their attraction towards the sexuality of men changes. So like you said, they're attracted to men, but instead of going for straight men after they transition, they chase after gay men and then end up getting obviously rejected. But I'm pretty sure by 99.9% of them because the gay men will say, I'm attracted to males. I'm attracted to men, not trans men. So the phenomenon you describe here, Jamie, is the opposite of what Debbie Hayton talked about on the episode I did with her called autogynophilia. And the phenomenon you talk about here is autoandrophilia. Can you explain what that term is for the listeners and how does it take hold and what are its implications amongst these biological females who transition? God, that was a mouthful. (laughs) That was a mouthful, but it's okay. Got through that question without tripping up. So I read this really great book by Dr. Deborah So. She's a neuroscientist. Oh, I read it as well. It's amazing. She studies uh, gender and brains and it's great. But she talks about autoandrophilia in this way that I've never seen it talked about before. And so her definition is the one that I'm going to use. She says that for autogynophiles, becoming a lesbian woman is the secondary focus. For autoandrophiles, women who are attracted to men who transition to become gay men, being a gay man is the focus. And it's, I wondered whether it even existed before I came into contact with these young people. I knew that it was a theory, but scientific theories don't always hold up in in terms of evidence. And then I met them and I saw, oh my gosh, they're real. 
This is a real thing. And I went back and I looked at Lisa Littman's paper, her, her now famous paper, where she talks about rapid onset gender dysphoria, where a child with or teenager with no history of childhood gender dysphoria suddenly declares that they're trans and decides to transition. And I went back and looked at the data and 60% of the minors that were talked about were either identified as heterosexual or bisexual by their parents. Only 40% were identified as homosexual, so like lesbians. And so recognizing, oh, the data that we currently have talking about this phenomenon fits in this really weird way with this autoandrophilia that I've been observing. Maybe there's a link there. And that's really what I was trying to say in that, in that bit of the blog post was, I think there is a link. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I think there is a link. I also think, and Helena touched on this, uh, several other detransitioners have touched on this really brilliantly, that women who are attracted to men who want to transition to become gay men are shown a romanticized version of what it is to be a gay male. Right. And they don't really understand the reality of it. They understand that they find it arousing or attractive, but they don't understand that gay men are not going to want to date trans men most of the time. There's exceptions, but most of they're pretty rare. The gay I men, imagine. yeah. Most of the gay men that I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of them, are like, there's some trans men that are objectively attractive, but do I want to date them knowing the anatomy that they have? No, that's entirely their choice. And so a lot of what I found in that piece regarding these young women is that they have a very inflated sense of themselves as already valid. And I, I kind of talked about this toward the end of it, where I said, you know, they're demanding to be rewritten as kings. They're rewriting their own history, right? But they're also rewriting everybody else's. They're trying to say, I was never a girl. I was always a gay man. And that's objectively not true. You, <laughs> that's you can, a sentence, isn't it? <laughs> you can see yourself any way you'd like. I'm, I'm living proof of it. But to revise history to that degree, not just your own, but to turn to everybody around you and say, yeah, I'm absolutely a gay man, even though I have female anatomy. It's just not true. You're changing the definition true. of what homosexuality means, surely. Right, right, right. And that was my point, is that if we're going to have this conversation about people transitioning, about children transitioning, we need to understand who these kids are. We need to understand what their motivations are. And we need to know, and the adults in the room, the medical professionals in the room, the parents need to know that language is the weapon that these people use. They use it and they use it well. And they make emotional appeals to change language that cannot be changed. If they're, and I don't know the, the right answer for this, but if they're ensconced in the LGBT community, Jamie, before they transition, surely they must have gay male friends or friends of that nature. Surely they would ask them before transitioning, will I get success with gay men? if I transition and chase after them? Or is that just not happening? In my experience, and this is only my experience, that is not happening. Because what happens is, these kids come into these support groups and say, I'm a gay trans man, you know, but I haven't transitioned yet. And then another gay trans man in the group says, oh yeah, I'm a gay trans man and I have transitioned and you'll be fine, you'll find a boyfriend, you'll be fine. But they don't actually go out and ask gay men. 
Right. They don't actually go out and ask gay men. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> God. That's just an absolute minefield, isn't it? Let's move on to parenting now, because this is something that you wanted to touch on. Most parents will want nothing more than their child to be happy, healthy, and accepting of who they are. Most will do anything to facilitate that. When it comes to teenagers with gender dysphoria who want to transition, Jamie, you talk about the rise of the advocate mother, in quotation marks, as a factor. Can you explain what that means? All right, so... When I was thinking about this phenomenon that I had seen of mothers sticking up for their trans children, as they would consider them, I thought long and hard about, okay, how do I want to word this? Because it's a phenomenon a bit like rapid onset gender dysphoria, where until Lisa Littman put a name to it, it didn't really exist. I thought long and hard about it, and then I realized, oh, they see themselves as advocates before they see themselves as mothers. And they're, they come into the group as a mother to a child. And as time goes on and they learn more and more, and I've seen this in real time, their whole identity becomes, I'm the mother of a trans child. Essentially, I'm an advocate for a trans child. And I started looking around to see, you know, am I just imagining this? Is this a real thing? I saw this documentary called Transhood on HBO. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Haven't watched it. But there is a a young child by the name of Avery who was featured on the cover of National Geographic. And their mother, her whole identity is in being an advocate for this kid. And I saw that with the mothers that I interacted with where, yes, they were mothers to their children and they did all the regular things that mothers do. But they were really advocates first. And I remember reflecting back, thinking about my own mother and what she had to do for me, because there were times where I couldn't make decisions for myself. And so she had to make them for me, you know, medically speaking. And and I realized it, it really is the same thing that I see in the disabled community, where the mothers are the ones that are stepping up and saying, I will do anything for my child. I will fight for my child. The mothers here are doing the same thing or something very similar to the mothers that I've met. So it's that behavior, but it's, would you say it's like linking it to some sort of social capital? Yes, yes. It often functions as a social capital because when mothers talk amongst each other about their children, and I've been privy to these conversations, you know, as a young kid, just sort of listening in the background, they talk about everything. There is no stone left unturned. Yeah. And there's always this sense among mothers that I've found that they try sometimes to one-up each other. Ah, especially okay. among The bragging rights thing, right, yeah. Yeah, especially among mothers of disabled children. And I've seen this more times than I can count, where my mother would come in with me somewhere, you know, where we were around other disabled people and their families, and they would get to talking about their kids. And my mom would say, oh, you know, Jamie's doing really, really well, she's not on any like major surgeries or medications or what have you, like she's doing well. And then another mother would chime in, well, my child is having all these surgeries and is doing all these, you know, things. And it's this social capital thing. Oh, that's such a mess. if (laughs) If you look more, more like a victim, then you are given more social capital because the mothers around you respond with sympathy and, you know, what can I do for you? And it's just mind-boggling to me, but it's very real. It's very real. So 
when some of these, and I'm not saying all of them, when some of these kids could tr- detransition, do you think that actually makes that parent fearful? Because if they detransition, then they might think, what are the social ramifications for me? Yes. Yes, that is absolutely something that they think about. Actually, I'm I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, with Reddit, but I've seen multiple instances where parents are talking about their trans children online, and they will talk about how their child wants to detransition, but they don't want to stop giving their child their hormones. They have to force their kids to take hormones because for them, if they don't have a trans child, what do they have? It's kind of like Jesus Christ. That is yeah, weird. it's it's something that you wouldn't think would occur that you think is absolutely bonkers until you look around and you realize, oh my gosh, that's exactly what they're doing, and they're hiding it behind this "I'm a good mother" facade. We're getting into deep territory here, but can I just ask, where are the fathers in this? Are there advocate fathers, or do they just naturally take a back seat? What's the situation with dads? They naturally take a back seat. You find in these pairings of mothers and fathers with gender dysphoric children who transition that mom is often the one who, for lack of a better phrase, wears the pants. And dad is kind of a go with the flow kind of guy. Mom is like, this is what my child needs. I'm going to advocate for my child. I'm going to be there for my child. I'll go and move heaven and earth for my child. And dad's just like, Okay. Drive them around, you know, pay and the bills, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's yeah. one of those situations where in these groups that I was in, I noticed, I, I looked around after a while and I realized, where are the fathers? There's mm. men in this room. There aren't any fathers, you know. It's all moms. And, and why is that? And I realized, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. In college, I, I took a, a class on the sociology of disability. I learned a lot. But basically what I learned is that Fathers of disabled children think about their kids as future adults. And mothers of disabled children think about their kids as social people. They're worried about, you know, are you making friends, etc. Fathers are worried about future success and mothers are worried about present success. I realized as I was sitting around with these women, talking to them about their children, getting to know them and actually really liking them, that... The reason there are no fathers in the room is because if a child got super emotional about their gender dysphoria and threatened suicide or said, I'm never going to have a happy life if I don't transition, any number of things, a father would say to them, you're an individual. You don't need the group to be who you are. Right. You just need to be you. And a mother would say, oh, well, if that's what you think you need and all these people are telling you that's what you need, then that's absolutely what you need. Mothers are very group-oriented. It's part of their social conditioning. And fathers are not. Fathers just tend not to be. And I've seen that with my own parents as well, where my mom, I don't really talk to her about my transition. She supports me. She doesn't like it, but she supports it. Whereas my father is very, very against it. Supports me, loves me as a person, but we fight about it because he's like, you're an individual. Why do you need to follow this group of people? Right. Why do you need to do these things? And I'll never forget recognizing when I told the support group about my parents, they said to me, your parents are transphobic. You need to cut them off. Jesus. 
if they don't accept you, you need to cut them off. And I said, no, I'm not gonna, sorry about it. And they just looked at me kind of weird, like, why wouldn't you, you know? And it's like, because at least when I'm fighting with my father about this, I know that he cares about me. Isn't that a culty tactic? It is. It's a very culty tactic. I was just thinking out loud there. Isn't, isn't that what people do? Like, isn't that what people in like abusive relationships do? Like, cut off your friends. Don't need to see them. Cut off your mum and dad. What have they done for you? That's what people in abusive relationships do to each other. That's exactly what they do. And as soon as I real, as soon as they said that to me, I realized what it was, and I said, "I am not." That's essentially why I left because I recognized I don't need these people to aid me in my decision to transition. I, I know who I am as a person. I know what I value, and mm. I value my relationship with my family too much to take their word for it essentially yeah thank god you had that self-awareness for sure the final question i want to ask you here jamie revolves around pushback and discipline because you say in the article quote the girls who were their parents spoiled princesses growing up have now demanded to be rewritten as kings they're going from teens in indoctrinating support groups in inverted commas to adults with a vendetta so when they are adults what will these adults do to the conversation and how will they affect people like you? It's funny that you ask me this question now because I'm not sure if you're aware there's a video circulating of a talk that a man named James Younger tried to give at a university. Oh, I've and... seen clips. I didn't want to watch the whole thing. I've seen clips. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's one you mean. It... I think I know I think is it an is it a Republican congressman or something like that? He's not a Republican congressman. He's a father who does not support his child's gender transition. Maybe I saw a different one, but yeah, maybe send me the one you forced... mean because yeah, because I think I saw one and it was hor- it was horrific. It was just a load of kids shouting at this guy, and it was that's uh... yeah, that's that's the video that you saw. Right, that's the video that you saw. You asked me, you know, are they going to make the lives of transsexuals like myself worse? They already are. They already are adults. They've spent their whole childhood being indoctrinated into these groups, being told you're valid, you don't need to pass, you don't need to have dysphoria, you don't, you're a man exactly as you are and you don't need to have any medicalization and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not, I'm not somebody that pushes medicalization unnecessarily. I think by now you know that, Mm -hmm. but these kids grow up in these echo chambers and then they become adults who go out into the world and can't handle being invalidated. And as a transsexual, let me tell you, part of, the difficulty in living a life like this is that everybody wants to invalidate you because we know that sex cannot be changed. And so I've gotten horrible comments from people saying, you're never going to be a man. You're not a real man. You're not this. You're not that. You need bottom surgery to be a man. You need whatever. If I were like these kids and I had had people validating me my whole childhood and adolescence, I would be crushed. I would be crushed by such invalidation. But because I did not have that, I'm able to sort of brush it off. There's a resilience, and I think Buck Angel has talked about he this. He has, yeah. He's spoken about it on the episode that's coming out on Monday about it. There's a, a resilience that comes when you are invalidated early on in your transition, where you have to decide, okay, do I want to take these comments personally, or do I want to just brush them off and, and go on with my life and be solid in my sense of self? And transsexuals, they already have to have that resilience. And the expectation from young women who do not have the life experience to be making such an irreversible choice, I think the trans community is really going to struggle in the coming years. I don't know how. 
But I think the backlash is going to be severe. I'm afraid, to be honest with you. I really am. Yeah, I've spoken to Mars and Buck about this, and it made Buck quite emotional, actually, when I asked this question about what do you think will happen in the future? Do you think, as the trans guest that I've spoken to, Jamie, that we're going to see this wave of detransitioners happen in the UK and the US and across the world, but largely, obviously, the UK and the US where this phenomenon is more prominent? Oh yeah, I'm I'm a lurker on various internet, <laughs> you know, groups as as you can probably tell. Um, I am part of the Dtrans subreddit. I just go in and read because as I'm not a detransitioner, I'm not allowed to post. But they're a really amazing group of individuals, and there's so many of them, mm. and there's new stories every single day. Mm. And I read things. I don't want to get emotional, but these stories always make me cry. Mm. I read things from these kids that are like, I was a kid and they were supposed to help me and they didn't. And it's like, how do you come back from that? I mean, I have written about this and spoken about this. I had a surgery that was botched when I was a young kid. And I was the one that made the decision to have that surgery. My parents signed the consent form, but they sat me down and they were like, yeah, it's your body we want you to decide, which for the time was incredibly progressive. I have to applaud them there. But I made that decision and then it ended up not working. And I remember sitting there as a little nine-year-old girl, not understanding what had gone wrong and thinking that it was my fault and recognizing I have to live with this forever. And what am I going to do about it? That's the closest that I get to a detransitioner is having that shared experience of of a medical procedure that you regret. Mm. And these young people are being massively failed by institutions and professionals that are supposed to protect them. And I think it is one of the greatest travesties that we will ever see in human history. I think as time goes on, we're going to understand why what happened happened. But right now, it's just chaos. Mm. It's absolute chaos. And it's horrible. As a final question before we reflect, Jamie, then, what would you want to see as the ideal then? Would you say, for example, only allow people above the age of 21 or 25 or 18 to medically transition? Or would you kind of overhaul the system for teenagers? What would you want to happen that would stop this, essentially? I don't know that I feel comfortable speaking about the needs of dysphoric teenagers because I was dysphoric as a teenager, but I was not medicalized and I had not socially transitioned yet. I did all of this as an adult, so that informs my perspective. However, I think there needs to be an age minimum. I would say 25 because as I'm approaching, uh, I turned 25 in April. As I'm approaching 25, I feel ready. I feel like I've lived enough life. I understand the risks. I've read enough. I've talked to so many people, had so many life experiences. You get to a quarter of life already done, and it's like you're so different than when you started. The prefrontal cortex is done as well. It's all it's fully developed, isn't it? Right, yeah, right. Yeah. And there's there's the prefrontal cortex is done. That's part of why I waited. So I think there needs to be an age minimum. I also think there needs to be mental health minimums in place. I think there needs to be letters from professionals in place. When you go for things like hormones and surgeries, which the current WPATH standards of care that are out, they lowered the age for adults. They reduced the letters that you need from, I believe, two to one for bottom surgery. And I think you only need 
I, I think you no longer need a letter for hormones, but uh, it's this informed consent model that is really messing these kids up. It's not even transition. It's not even doing it too early. Those are things, you know, every person is different, but if the model is not correct and it's not solid, it's not backed by evidence, then a lot of people are going to suffer. So I would advocate for a return to WPATH version six. I mean, when I was looking to transition, I saw the standards of care that were currently out, which were version seven. And I said, this isn't worth the paper it's printing on. I'm going to go see if there's a better version of this where they actually list eligibility criteria and readiness criteria. Version six was the version that I found that in. And I think we need eligibility criteria. I think we need readiness criteria. I think we need minimums, minimum amount of time that you're in mental health care, minimum age that you're at, just safekeeping rather than gatekeeping. Exactly. And that's what Buck has said to me on our podcast together. As a final question, Jamie, before we move on to mental health chat, going on this advocacy journey in the trans conversation so far, what has it taught you about yourself? It's taught me that I am a lot stronger than I thought I was. I thought that if I couldn't transition, my life was essentially over. When I started and I realized, oh, I have a whole life in front of me, a whole full life full of people that love me and things that I love doing. Yes, I'm a transsexual, but there's there's more to me than that. And also recognizing you have to be incredibly mentally tough to transition in the first place. I think that's a requirement. Mm -hmm. I, I think it... It really aids. And so when you are going through the process of transition, when you are going through the process of advocacy as well, you recognize that you're not always going to do things right. But if you try and you, and you make an effort to be a good person along the way and treat people with respect and choose your words carefully, things will turn out well for you. I've made mistakes as an advocate. But I admit those mistakes. And I'm, I've always said, I'm not an expert in anybody else's experience. I'm only an expert in mine. And this is what it has meant to me. It also has made me a lot braver, a lot braver, because I recognize now, unlike when I was in college and I was an English major and writing papers for classes that my professor had to read, had to give me a grade for, now I'm writing outside of that medium and I'm writing for real people that are actually reading my stuff. And I'm recognizing it doesn't matter to me if they read it. It doesn't matter to me if they like it. I'm writing it because I think it's it's valuable and it's the right thing to do. And it will reach people if it's meant to. And I don't need to worry so much about audience. I mean, knowing your audience is key, obviously, <laughs> but worrying about them as a writer, you really don't need to because you put the right words together. And even if they're clumsy words, even if they're not the most eloquent or the most polished, they give you the capacity to reach people. And that's always what I've tried to do my whole life is say to people that, that meet me, yes, my life experience is different, but I am just like you and I can prove it. And here is my story and I'm a human being. That's always what I've been about. Our final topic, Jamie, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health at the moment? At the moment, today, my mental health is really good. I make a point not to generally say my mental health is good. I have to take it day by day because mm -hmm. 
it's not always good and it's not always bad. And I think it's not a good idea to generalize. Generally, when someone asks me that question, I say, oh yeah, I'm good, even if, if, if I don't really mean it. But today, I really mean it. It's been a good, good day. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. What age do you think you were, Jamie, when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I would say I was about five or six, I think. Wow. Okay. Very, very early, 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 yeah. early memories of recognizing, okay, I recognize reality but I'm not feeling really good about it. And why is that? And realizing it's not a physical thing that's happening to me. It's an emotion that I'm having and a psychological response really is the phrase that I'm mm. having to something happening to me. And so, yeah, those, those are some of my earliest memories, particularly, you know, of realizing that my body was quote unquote wrong. Those are some of my earliest memories. Mm. And when you go through something like that, you become very aware very quickly of your mental health. So it's always been in my mind to some degree. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like a part of you had changed or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it seem like something quite insignificant, easy and normal to do? The first conversation I had with my mental health about someone the way that I remember it. It was not technically the first conversation, but for me, it was the first conversation that mattered. My parents, when I was a teenager and I had started self-harming, had found a therapist who was in a wheelchair and they took me to see him and we had a family therapy session. And I was honest for the first time in my life, like really honest about what I was dealing with. And I said, you guys don't get it. And the only person in this room who gets it is the guy sitting at the front. And I look back on that and that was so significant for me because I recognized, oh, there are people who understand how I feel and I don't have to suffer unnecessarily. And even when I feel like I'm by myself, I'm really not. And maybe I should try connecting with people more. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health, Jamie? So it could be things people might say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular place. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? I, unfortunately, as a result of everything that I've been through, I know my triggers very, very well. <laughs> Particularly if there is a movie or a TV show and a brother or a sister dies I have to be told about that in advance. You can't just spring that on me. If somebody tells me they're going to be at a certain place at a certain time and they're late, I get really, really anxious. Mm. If I don't hear from my loved ones for a while, for whatever reason, and it's usually nothing major, I get concerned, particularly with my immediate family, that one of them has died and I don't yet know. My brother's birthday and his the day that he died is, is a trigger for me obviously because he was an athlete like I was telling you earlier all kinds of sports things are really hard for me to be around but really one of the biggest ones is seeing happy families all together like seeing people being part of a family together and recognizing like I'm never gonna have that ever again like I have a family but they're not the family that I had before and we can't ever go back. There's others, obviously, I'm not going to list them all, but it's reminiscent of someone who's been through, I guess, 
deep trauma is the only way I can describe mm. it. You know, mm. those things that you can't even explain to other people, but they're very real to you. Conversely, then, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Well, writing is an obvious one, but also reading about the experiences that I'm having as a result of all this mental health stuff to really understand what I'm dealing with when I'm faced with a problem. I read about it. I look it up and I read about it. I've always been a reader. Reading has always helped me to make sense of the world that I'm in, and especially the position that I'm in. Making sure that I connect with at least one person once a day always is a good thing. Having a really solid routine, get up at the same time, go to bed at the same time, have breakfast at the same time, make sure I take my meds, you know, all that in my routine. And then also controlling my alcohol usage. I do not use hard drugs or any other drugs, but alcohol was the way that I soothed when I was in college and as a teenager. And when I do drink, I don't do well mentally for obvious reasons. It's a depressant, right? But I'm also, I have a depressant already in my system with the muscle relaxer. So you put those two things together and I get really, really, really depressed. So I try to manage my drinking. I try to manage how much I'm isolating because I have a tendency to do that. Not anything super, you know, super intense. I mean, I take meds, but it's just general day-to-day being a human being and having a full life type things that help you mentioned reading there so what is the best book or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health related but it doesn't exclusively have to be the best book that i have read i'm trying to remember the name of it i'm probably gonna botch that but (laughs) it is something along the lines of what I learned when my brain was trying to kill me. Right. One person's uh, one person's approach to suicidality. I don't remember the name. I don't remember the author. It's about this woman who struggled with suicidality and mental health issues for like 18 years. Multiple hospital stays, multiple medications, multiple suicide attempts. And she went on to get better and became a mental health professional. And she wrote this book because she recognized that the the mental health professionals in her life were not understanding suicidality from her perspective. Was it Susan Blauner by any chance? I've just Googled it. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes, yes, it was. And I was actually on my honeymoon. I had just gotten married and my wife... We were in a bookstore and she picked it up off the shelf and said, this looks interesting. I think you should read it. And I opened it and I just started crying because it was the book that I needed when I was 13, 14, 15, wondering why, why do I get these periods of time where I don't want to be alive anymore? What is that? What did I do? Am I, do I really have depression? And the answer to that question, by the way, is no, I don't. Formally speaking, I'm not diagnosed because one of the things that excludes you from a, di- from a depression diagnosis is the death of a loved one. Your depression cannot be a result of the death of a loved one. And mine is. So I don't have a formal diagnosis, but I struggle with a lot of the same things. And that book just completely changed my life, completely changed my perspective. It's to this day one of the best books that I've ever read. 
And as a final question, Jamie, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think we have to make sure that the people around us understand that mental health is just as important as physical health. Mental health is sort of looked at as this, you go to therapy and you like meditate or whatever. And it's really not like that. It's just like managing your body. It's just like eating well. It's just like working out. You have to keep your mind healthy and you have to do everything you can to keep your mind healthy because you only have one. There's things in your mind, just like things in your body that you can't fix. And if you don't deal with them, you're going to suffer. So you should make every effort to make sure that your mind is healthy, just like your body is healthy. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and checking in with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Jamie for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links to where you can follow Jamie and subscribe to his Substack in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. Give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.